0: Our reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thanks,
1: Steve. Well, that's a, an incredible section of scripture, isn't it? Let's, let's start with prayer so that maybe the Holy Spirit can open our minds and our hearts to really soak that in and, and, and believe that to be true. Um, Lord, thank you for your inspired word. Uh, Lord, I think of um, the saints before Moses, like Abraham. He had no inscripturated word, um, and yet, Lord, you justified him by faith. And so we share the blessing of Abraham, but Lord, we share a greater blessing because now we've got more of your history behind us. We've got more uh, events um, in our personal lives, but also recorded in Scripture to authenticate what Paul has just said here at the end of Romans chapter 8. And Lord, I thank you for that. Holy Spirit, would you apply that in our hearts? Would you open our hearts to believe the great and abundant truths that you have for us in your word? And Lord, I pray that in believing, we would not just nod and smile, but Lord, that it would affect how we live because we know this to be true. Lord, give us what what the Bible calls hope in these things. And Lord, um, pray for our world today as uh, we're going through a lot of upheavals, a lot of changes, Lord, specifically here in California. There are numerous wildfires. And uh, Lord, I'm sure that our uh, first responders and our emergency workers are... are taxed to the limit. So Lord, would you give them grace? And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, there would be no more uh, fires started, that they would get some uh, headway on the fires that exist. We pray for the people who have been um, displaced by these fires, who have lost everything. Lord, I pray that in um, leaving their homes and even in losing their homes, Lord, they would find that material possessions just don't ultimately satisfy that um, eventually it's all going to burn, is what Peter tells us. And so, Lord, uh, please use these catastrophes uh, for good in in the lives of many, many people, we ask. And, uh, Father, I pray for our upcoming election. Um, Lord, this is one of the most divisive uh, elections that I can recall uh, in quite a while. And, uh, Father, there's a a lot of anger and resentment on both sides. Lord, um, America has been a... um, an interesting experiment in personal freedom and father we know that it is all in your hands Lord that you raise up um, civilizations you raise up empires You raise up kings and Lord at the right time you bring them down and so Lord we trust that America is in your hand and Lord that you will do what is right and just and perfect according to your plan and Lord up in the midst of all of that I just pray that your church would be the church that we would um, remain true and faithful to Jesus Christ, that we would continue to proclaim uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the implications that come from that, Lord, that um, there is neither slave nor free, male or female, um, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, or or, uh, Gentile, Lord, but all are are, uh, equal in Christ. And so, Lord, would you help us to be a consistent voice in in our um, social upheaval uh, Lord, please bless your church in America and make her faithful, we pray. Lord, now uh, please show us uh, the truth of, of Romans chapter 8 this morning. Lord, don't let me mess it up. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak clearly and uh, truthfully to your people in a way that would bring the maximum amount of glory to you and the maximum amount of joy to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. so um, we need to kind of orient ourselves really quick before we get into chapter eight, the second part of chapter eight, so that um, it can do what I think is Paul's aim here. So um, to just put a little context here, remember what chapter seven was about. Uh, chapter seven was that war that we face. We have been made new spiritually. We've been justified. We've been given uh, the spirit of, of adoption in our hearts. We have a desire to follow God in our, in our heart, but Our flesh hasn't been redeemed yet. And so chapter 7 was that war, that wrestling of uh, our flesh and the inclination it wants and the spirit and the inclination that it's calling us in. And so we saw that Paul was really struggling in chapter 7 and and ends with, uh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Um, he, He wants the the final state but he's not there yet so where he goes in chapter eight is he reminds us of everything that's come before and he gives us this blessed hope in the future uh last week what we saw was um the beginning of his answer we couldn't I, it would have been great to do all of eight at one shot but it's too big um so what we saw last week was the beginning of his answer how did, how do we wrestle through this how do we win that fight what well, we've been given the spirit of adoption And that spirit of adoption is in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so the struggle that Paul expressed in seven is real. And yet it's real because the spirit is at work in us. And so where we're going to go with the rest of chapter eight is we're going to see this divine conspiracy for our glorification. Um, What what Paul is going to do is he's going to show us all the ways in which God is working to ensure that we arrive at that final state, um, even though there is a war going on with us. And so that's why he begins in verse 26. The first word is likewise, Uh, in a similar fashion, like he he has done before. He says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. So likewise, like what? Well, last week, it was the spirit was the spirit of adoption in our hearts, crying out Abba, Father, in a similar fashion, in a similar way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, when I've read this before, because of what he says in the very next sentence, I've always thought he was talking about our weakness in prayer. Um, We don't pray as we should, and so the Spirit comes and helps us. But having studied this a little more carefully, I think the weakness that he's speaking of is not just our prayerlessness. It's at least that. But I think where he's going with it is our, our overall weakness. All that we are encompassed of weakness, the Spirit comes and helps us. So our our spirits have been made new, our bodies are still doing the same things, and that is our weakness. And so what is the thing that we need most to win this war against the flesh, against the sinful inclinations, and to godliness? What do we need most? Well, prayer is one of the most important things we can do, and it's one of the easiest to neglect. So what he tells us is the spirit helps us in our weakness, in all of that weakness, in in everything that we face, and all those desires that we really shouldn't be expressing, but they're just there. And what do we do? So here's how the spirit helps us for that's, that's a connection there. The, the reason that, or the way that he helps us is we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. We're just not sure how, what we should be praying for. Um, perhaps this has been your experience. When you start praying, you start praying and you, you find yourself a couple of minutes in just, man, I've gone through my laundry list. It's just gimme, 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 or help, 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 or something like this. And, and, Those are all good and right things to pray for, but it just didn't feel complete. Um, One of the the pieces of advice I got in seminary was pray until you pray. And and so keep praying until you get there. Um, Tim Keller once said, uh, if you don't feel like praying, pray and ask God that you will feel like praying. So it's that idea of praying while you pray or pray till you pray. And what we find here, what Paul is telling us, where these wise men have come up with that answer is, we're counting on the fact that the spirit himself intercedes for us. We don't know how we should pray, but the spirit himself intercedes for us. He, he comes and he helps us pray. So, um, the, the idea there is that the spirit is doing a work of intercession. Uh, the spirit intercedes for us. Now what we'll see in a moment is Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. Verse 34. So, When we read here that the Spirit intercedes for us, it's probably not the same type of intercession that Jesus is doing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, and he is presenting his sacrifice on our behalf. He is showing God the Father the righteousness that he had, that he has attributed to us. And that is his intercession in heaven. So what does it mean here that the Spirit himself intercedes for us? Um, he intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Um, now, uh, the, there's various ways to understand what that means. Literally, it's he intercedes with us with groanings that are wordless or wordless groanings. Um, so we need to look at for a second, The groaning turns up a bunch of times in, this, in chapter 8 really quick together. In verse 22, we saw that creation groans. Uh, creation was subjected to futility. And so that means that when Adam fell, the creation was affected by that. It's been subjected to futility. And, and creation now is waiting for us to be adopted as sons, and it's groaning. And what Paul says in, in the very next verse, 23, is he says, well, we groan. But we're groaning too. We're groaning and we're awaiting our adoptions our adoption. And the way he explains it is he says, that's the redemption of our bodies. Um, So we're in this halfway point and it's not comfortable. It's not supposed to be. Um, And then what he tells us here in verse 26 is the spirit groans. So the spirit is groaning too. And what's happening there is you notice creation, us and and God himself are groaning. In other words, The situation that we're in right now, the only situation you have ever known all of your life is not the way it's supposed to be. Creation isn't happy with it. After we're born again, after we're justified, after we're in Christ, we're not happy with it. And what we just found out is God himself is not happy with it. He's groaning with it. So there's a lot of groaning going on. we're, We're aching for that moment where we're adopted, where our bodies are redeemed, where we're set free from the sin and the, the, um, the uh, death and all the things that have come because we're in Adam. Now we're waiting for that. So what does it mean then that the spirit groans? Well, it, the spirit groans, um, but don't forget that we groan, right? So the spirit is in us and the spirit is groaning, but what Paul says in 23 is actually we groan inwardly. And so the Holy Spirit is within us, and he is groaning. So it's not an intercession like Jesus standing before the throne. The Spirit is in us, and he's doing something. He's working in us. So remember last week, what did the Spirit do? Well, it's through the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit does the work. He is the one who prompts us, who who leads us to cry, but we are the one who cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit is already in us doing something. Now the Spirit is in us groaning. And so as we groan inwardly, that is a Spirit-prompted groan. And so he inclines and guides our prayers through this wordless groaning. He, he's giving us the desires that we should have. Now listen to this next part, because this is a tremendous promise. He said, and he who searches the hearts, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So who searches hearts? Well, that's God the Father, and he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because of the Trinity, because they're one, but also because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So that's how God the Father knows what the Spirit is interceding for the saints with, because he has searched our hearts. But here's the part that is really great. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as the Spirit is prompting us and leading us in prayer with these wordless groans, the great news is he's doing it according to the will of the Father. And, and that has tremendous promise because what we're told in 1 John is if anyone, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know if he hears us, In whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. So what you have is you have the Holy Spirit in you, groaning, prompting you to pray, leading you in ways to pray that you don't even know how to pray. And the great news is he's doing it according to the will of God. And then John tells us if if we pray according to the will of God, we have it. God's going to give that. So that's a tremendous thing that the Holy Spirit is doing for us. He's working in us to prompt us to pray, and to lead us into prayer. Um, Now, he does it with wordless groans, but prayer is not wordless, is it? Um, As a matter of fact, in in Matthew 6, uh, Jesus is talking about prayer when he's he's doing the the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about prayer, and listen to what he says, uh, beginning of verse 7. And you, uh, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So it sounds like Jesus is saying, oh, well, don't use words to pray. Well, no, not at all. Listen to where he goes with this. He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what he says is don't pray with a multitude of words thinking that that's going to do it. But at the same time, he doesn't say just don't use words. He gives us words to pray. So the the Spirit is prompting us with wordless groans, and then we are to wrap them in words and express them to our Father. And so Jesus gives us this pattern in the Lord's Prayer and how we should pray. And the good news is that he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so that's how we know that our prayers can be heard and can be answered is because the Spirit is working in us to prompt us to pray that way. So I'm going to get practical for a second. Go back to that first point I made. Pray until you pray. So if you sit down in the morning to pray, and I know it's not easy to do, um, that's the, the, the flesh heading in a certain direction. It's not comfortable. But if you can take some time and purposely set aside some time and just say, I'm going to pray until I pray, um, you'll know when you get there. You, you'll feel it. You'll go, wow, that was, that was I felt like I'd really connected with God in that. It takes planning. It takes intention and it takes work, and you have to know that it's not gonna be comfortable um, to get there, to make sure you get there. When it happens spontaneously, that's great, but you can also pursue it on a regular basis. So pray until you pray. If you don't feel like praying, God knows that, and he searches hearts, he knows. So pray, Lord, would you help me pray? I had a really great experience last week when I sat down to pray. I just decided I would do what I've always heard people say to do, and I, I've done it, but I never really did it, sort of, is I just prayed and I thought about what are all the ways in which God is just wonderful? What what are all the ways in which he has been so good to me? And so I just, I didn't worry about my my checklist of things that I needed to pray about. I just wanted to sit and focus on Lord, who are you? What have you done for me? And, and I just read in Romans this wonderful statement of truth. And just start thanking him for that. And, and it's surprising how after a minute or two, you get kind of carried away in that. And, uh, and you can flow with it. So that is the important part of prayer. Prayer is part of how we are going to make it to the end. That's, that's what he says. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So that's what we have to work on is, is prayer is one of the prime tools to help us in that war against the flesh to make it all the way to the end. So that's the great promise. Now, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his promise. One of the greatest memory verses in the Bible. Um, It it has so much power and so much potential. There's a translation issue with it, though. So we said that it's... um, Uh, God. uh, For We know that those who love God, all things work together. The NIV says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who call him. The New American Standard says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So the problem or the question is, that work together, that's actually one Greek word, that work together. Who's that talking about? Is it talking about all things or is it talking about God? Which is the subject of that verb. Um, And it it goes back and forth. There was actually one early or a handful of early manuscripts, uh, just not widely attested, that put um, uh, another word in there to help clarify it. Modern translations don't do that because it doesn't seem to be well attested. But here's the thing. In the end, does it matter? In, In the end, the same thing is true. God himself is working for our good in all things. And we'll get to the all things in a little bit. Toward the end, uh, Paul will bring up a list of all things that God is working together for our good. So the great news is God is working all things together for our good, for those who um, love him and are called according to his purpose. So those are the two qualifications. Is he working all things together for good for all people? Well, no. I mean, in a one sense, yes, he is because of general grace. He sends sunshine on the wicked and the just. He puts rain on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. So in one sense, he's working things together for good. But ultimately, eschatologically, at the end of time, it's not going to be the good for all people. There will be some people for whom bad will be the, the, the destination. So who is he working together for good? Well, those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. So um, we'll get to called in just a moment. Um, let's, let's talk first about those who love God. Um, remember, I said that this sermon was about the, the, um, God's conspiracy to get us to glory. Um, so is love of God something that I have to str- stir up in my heart and, and, and fuel that fire every day? And, and boy, if I don't keep my eye on it, it's going to burn out. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But there's more to it than just that. Um, Romans five five, uh, God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So that Holy Spirit who is in you leading you to cry, Abba, Father, that Holy Spirit who is in you prompting you to pray according to the will of God is also in you spreading abroad the love of God in your heart. So God has conspired to put all of those things in place. He is specifically working for you. And so that's That's the great news is whatever comes, God is working it for your good if you love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, So how do we know? Well, let's keep going. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So I said that this was the divine conspiracy for our glorification. Conformed to the image of his son is glorification. Um, And we'll we'll unpack that in a little bit, but um, let's let's take a look at this first. So what does it mean when he says um, that those he foreknew? uh, Foreknowledge is uh, understood in various ways in different Christian traditions. Um, Some use it as uh, an idea of um, election where he he foreknew, therefore he chose uh, before the foundation of the world. Some would say well, he foreknew what you were going to do, and so he saw that you would have faith in him, so he decided from the beginning of the world that he would justify you. Um, that's not really a terribly helpful way uh, to understand that, that foreknowledge, that, that, that word foreknew. Um, it's going to come up again in the next section, but in chapter 11, it, right at the beginning, it says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew so he's talking about the jews he's saying he didn't reject his people whom he foreknew Um, does that mean that he had planned them from the beginning well yeah but it it, there's more to it than that Um, this kind of touches on what god said in amos 3 2. he says you only have i known and that known is the same greek root as uh, foreknew so the greek translation uses that same word um, that we would use as "foreknown." just puts a different prefix on it and says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So does that mean God had no concept, no idea that there were going to be any Gentiles, that he had only ever thought of the Jews? Well, no, that can't be. He knew the Gentiles. He, he knew that they were planned. But what he says is, you only have I foreknown. In other words, I have a unique relationship with Israel at this point. So the NIV translates that not you only have I known, but you only have I chosen. And the word there in the Greek translation is, is to know. And then in First 1 Peter 1.20, it says Jesus, He, Jesus, was foreknown from the foundation of the world. Um, does that mean that God just had this mechanicalistic plan for Jesus from the foundation of the world? No, there was a dynamic, loving, um, mutual relationship that the Father and the Son had. It was a it was a sense of relationship. So when we look at this, those He foreknew. Um, We shouldn't consider that in a cold calculating way or a checkbox on a, on a checklist kind of way, but in a relational way, those whom God foreknew before the creation of the world, he had decided I'm going to have a relationship with these people. Those he he predestined and and predestination is that, um, that word for how God has planned things out ahead of time. Um, it's pretty much, when you look at the history of it, it's pretty much a word invented by Christians. Um, there's some uses of it, similar words, but not exactly the way that the Christians use it. It seems like it may have been just a word that Christianity invented to express God's plan. So, for example, it, it's God's plan of salvation. It can include the sinful acts of other people, Acts 2, or Acts four twenty eight rather. Whatever your hand, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, talking about the crucifixion of Christ. So it has to do with this, with God's plan. He's got this, this uh, thing in mind that he's going to lead to, that he's going to, um, he's going to head to. But also here in, in Ephesians 1.5, he's talking about people. Those he foreknew he predestined. He predestined people. And in Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So that idea of of predestination is he has this relationship that he's established before he created us. He is now working because of that relationship along a predetermined plan that he's going to do. And what's the fruit of that? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That, That is the good news. That's what Paul is saying is, In light of chapter seven, you're wrestling, you're struggling, you don't feel particularly Christ-like, you don't feel like praying, you don't feel like doing good words, you're not really interested in in spiritual things this afternoon. God has foreknown you. He, he, He knew you before the foundation of the world, and he has set a plan in motion, and that plan is to take you to a place to conform you ultimately to the image of his Son, to bring you to glory, to make you glorified. So that's, that's the great news now, as we're struggling in that war, as we're wrestling through that, that battle of, of how am I going to make it today, I just don't feel it, is you look back and you go, but God foreknew me. He had established a relationship and he's leading me into a place to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Why would he do that? The rest of verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so when we look at Jesus, what we see is Jesus is the first one raised from the dead. Now, does that mean nobody else came back from the dead before him? Well, yeah, there's there's a number of people that came back from the dead. Uh, Elijah raised the widow's son. Jesus himself raised raised Elijah and a widow's um, uh, son who he ran into outside of of a, a, a town he was visiting. But those all died. They all went back to the grave. Jesus in his resurrection was not just raised from the dead again, but he was raised and put in a a glorified body. Acts chapter 2, no longer to see corruption. His body is not going back in the grave. So that's what Paul is getting at here, is that is the picture that we're looking toward, is Jesus is the first to be resurrected into a glorified body And that's the pattern that we're heading for. That's the direction we're going so that he will be the firstborn among many brothers. Remember we were adopted. We have been adopted. We're awaiting the consummation of the adoption and the consummation of that adoption is when this body is made new. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're looking for. And what it'll look like is we'll we'll look more like Jesus than we do now. And so in heaven, he will be the firstborn, he will be the heir, he will be the big brother who gets everything, who inherits his father's kingdom, but he will have many brothers and sisters. God wants to redeem not just a few scrapping people here and there, but he wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brothers. And so he's bringing many people along with him. So that's the picture is is we are predestined to be conformed to that image so that what we read in Revelation will be true. When John turned and he heard a multitude and he couldn't count them, that's what what God wants to do in saving us. That's how we know, that's the promise we have that we'll win that battle. So now verse 30, he goes on and says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, in that context, in the context of what we just read in, in uh, verse 30, that um, predestination has to do with conformity to the image of the sun. So that's the, go- the end goal. But look where he starts. For whom he predestined, he also called. So what does it mean that he called us? We saw it earlier, those who are called um, according to God's purpose. Well, there's a call that goes out to all the world. We, we go and we preach the gospel to everybody. We just indiscriminately tell everybody, if you trust Jesus, you can be saved. But there's more to it than that because there's that element of predestination of foreknowledge of that relationship. And so in um, John 10, the very beginning of John 10, uh, this is how Jesus explains it. He says, truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So what Jesus is saying is that the picture is um, shepherds would take their sheep out to the field to, to graze and to you know, get water. And that's, that's how they would grow is by eating. And some places and sometimes it would be necessary to put the sheep into a sheepfold to keep them safe from wolves or something. And so what would happen in some instances is numerous shepherds would bring their, their, um, their flocks together. And they would put them in this sheep fold, this, this walled in area uh, that would hold the sheep overnight. So then the the shepherds could make a fire, share food, share turns watching, keeping, you know, the wolves at bay, that kind of stuff. So if you put all the sheep in there, how do you get yours out? Well, that was the, the, The reason I think God picks that image of a shepherd is because of the way this works is the sheep would have spent so much time with their shepherd. He would have been leading them and leading them and leading them so that what they would do is they would hear his voice. He would call to his sheep and his sheep would come out to him. So imagine this big walled in sheep pen, just filled with sheep, all mingled around and everything and picture the the gatekeeper opening the gate and the shepherd standing in front and calling to his sheep. And all of a sudden some come out and some don't because some will come after the shepherd that they know that they love and some will simply not. They they don't know that voice. So that's the picture that Jesus paints there of that calling is he tells us go out into the world and and tell people that they can be saved. Preach to them the good news that, that salvation is possible. And that's because salvation is possible. But he has made sure that those who are his sheep, will hear his voice in our pronouncement of the gospel, and they will come out to him. So those he, he foreknew, he called. He, he decided these would be the ones, these would be the sheep that would hear my voice and come out to me. Um, there is really great confidence building in that. Because when you go out and you preach the gospel, when you go tell the nations that Jesus saves... What you don't have to worry about is what if I don't say it perfectly or what if I'm not persuasive enough or what if they just don't like me as a person? It's not about you. You're the shepherd standing out front going, sheep, come on, and Jesus' sheep will come out to you. So that takes the burden off of you, though you must call and you must call clearly or the sheep won't hear, but it's not your responsibility for the sheep to go in and sort out the sheep and grab this one and move that one and that kind of thing. Those he foreknew he called. Those he predestined, he called. And so what happens when he calls them? Those he called, he justified. How are we justified? Do you remember that? That was the first part of this book. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. So when, when it says that God called, he calls them out. In a sheep pen, they just walk out the gate. In our experience, what do you do when you're called? Um, You respond, you hear the voice and you go, well, of course I want that. That's a beautiful message. I I love that. I want that. You express faith. And so how are we justified? We are justified by faith. So God issues the call at the right time in your life, at the right place. You hear the beauty of that call and you respond with faith and God justifies you. Those he uh, predestined, he he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Wait, what? We're not glorified. This isn't glory. Uh, hopefully this isn't where I end up. Why on earth would he use past tense as if it had already happened? I, I think what he's doing is he's using a rhetorical device, that link of events. Those he foreknow, he predestined. He those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Is all things that is resting on what God has done. And so when he gets to the last one, he says it in the same pattern that, that the rest have come. So I think it's a rhetorical device to show us, to prove to us the surety of what is going to come at the end. If he has predestined us, there's no way that we won't arrive at the end. That, that is sure to happen. So he could talk about us being glorified in the past tense and that glory, what that looks like, the, the glory that we have, the glory that we will achieve is we will be conformed to the image of the resurrected Christ. So when, when the apostles walked with Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection, they were getting a taste, a glimpse of what our resurrection, our glorification will look like. Um, and and that, is, that is where we're going. That's where we're heading. So back to chapter seven, do you want to fight? Is it worth the fight if that's where we're going to go? Is it worth the fight if the spirit is, is already conspired to make you win? Is it um, worth the fight if God has already Planned from beforehand that he wants you to be among his sheep is—is is it worth the fight? Um, It's—it's it's our responsibility to be in there to do that, but it's God's ultimate responsibility to bring us to that end state. Can we wage war with—with with indwelling sin, given those truths? Um, and this is kind of like what we were saying with sanctification—that—that—that that, that process where we're made more holy. It's God who is at in us to will and to work but we do the work. We still have to work at it. We still have to do those things, but we don't do it relying on ourselves and thinking that we can get there based on our own. We are told what we must do, and then we are told God is at work in you to do it. So now God do it. Go do it. Um, came across a verse that I thought was really helpful on this too, Is Hebrews 12, uh, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. That's the same thing as what Peter tells us when he says, grow in grace. I can't strive for holiness. I can't get there because I'm not holy and I'm still walking around in this body. I can't grow in grace. Grace isn't earned. How do I do that? Well, that's what Paul has been explaining to us is he's, God has stacked the deck. He has given you all of these things. He's working in you to bring that about, to bring that purpose to you. So God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have all conspired to do these things. And so verse 31 what shall we say to these things? It's as if Paul is pausing, considering the dizzying heights that he's just expressed, and he said, what is the appropriate, the right response to all of that truth, all of what God has done and is doing in us, simply by faith, just by trusting him, saying, Lord, your way, not mine. What shall we say to these things? Um, golly, thanks. He says there's, there's so much more to it than that. If God is for us, who can be against us? God has done these things. Who's going to win the battle? Who's going to to fight against us and lose? Um, We can't lose. We can't be defeated because it doesn't rest on us. It rests on what God has done. Who can destroy what God's planned from the foundation of the world and will execute into infinity? Um, If God is for us, then who can be against? He says if God is for us, not if we're for God. God will take care of the fact that you're for God. If God is for us, not if we've done all the things that he's asked, if we've met all his requirements and worked really hard. It all relies on God. So who can oppose? Who can turn against that? Who can can win in that battle? God has done these things. And and that's the promise. That's the hope that he's giving us in chapter 8. So verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son. So when you look at what God has done, you say, oh, he's he's doing all of these things to win me to this end. Um, Does he really care about me? He did not spare his own son. And what I said last week, what I showed you last week is the father and the son have always existed in a loving relationship. The the most precious thing to the Father is the Son. The most precious thing to the Son is the Father. And so for the Father to take his most precious and beloved Son and give himself up for us, he didn't spare his Son. He didn't tell Jesus, oh, don't worry about the cross. He, He said, I am the just and the justifier. Therefore, you must go to the cross. He didn't spare him for us. So if he spent that much to gain us, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? The, the end is not dependent on you. It's dependent on God has said, I have spent my son. I put my son on a cross. I turned my face from him. I let the wrath of, of my anger against your sin rest on him. If I've done that, how can I not give you everything? How can I turn away from you? How can I stop being God to you? He, he has graciously given us all things. So he goes on, ha, um, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. So now he's going back to that issue of justification. Um, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Now the word elect there is talking about those he foreknew and predestined. That The Bible refers to us as the elect, those who are in Christ. It is um, Those who he foreknew, he predestined. Um, Therefore, they're his elect. So who will bring any charge against that group? What has God done to make them his people? What has he accomplished? Well, he justified us. He took Christ's active righteousness, Christ's real righteous nature, and he assigned it to us. And so when he looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness wrapped around us. Who can condemn that? If you can successfully condemn one of god's elect who's wrapped in christ's uh, righteousness well then you can condemn jesus and that's not possible that just isn't isn't any way for that to happen um who who he has um who it, uh, i'm sorry who shall bring any charge against god's elect there is no grounds for charge because we have jesus righteousness it is god who justifies god has done this he's wrapped us in that who can condemn us now Now, to do that, you would have to find fault in God. That is a comforting verse to hang on to when you're not standing well, when you're struggling, when you're wrestling. You say, wait a minute, Um, nobody can charge me. I have been justified. I can repent. I can apologize to God. I can go to him again, and I cannot be condemned. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's God who justifies. It rests on him. So verse 35 who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is that all things that I mentioned earlier. God is going to work all of these things not to our doom but to our good. So he asks, who can who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he asks the question, but he doesn't answer it with a list of names. He answers it with a list of actions. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Um, so who is the who of the list? Well, in one sense, you could say this is Satan, because Satan did use things like that against Job, didn't he? He, he came in and he took all of Job's belongings. He, he ruined him. He had all of his cattle and all of his flocks and herds carried away. He had a storm come in and kill his uh, uh, Job's children, He afflicted him with boils. He he did that. So there was a who behind those things. Um, But Satan failed with Job. In the end, God started by saying, have you considered Job? He's righteous. And in the end, he says, after the long discussion, um, my servant Job has not sinned with his mouth. So Satan failed in that against Job. How much more for us? So when those things come against us, If it's Satan, he's already been beaten. He's already lost. But it doesn't always have to be Satan. It doesn't always have to have the devil behind it because notice in our context, Paul just doesn't answer who who is. He just lists the things that could come. Tribulation or distress or persecution. So what if those people come against us and bring persecution and and life gets really hard? Think about our brothers and sisters in China, uh, our brothers and sisters in Um, in the Middle East who have been executed for proclaiming Christ, can any of those things that come against them, all the persecution that they face, all the the torture, all the the difficulty, can that separate them from the love of Christ? You can't. It's not possible. Um, Famine or nakedness. So if we are denied food and clothing, will that separate us from the love of Christ? Now, be in the moment for a second. Think of what that would feel like to be persecuted, to be starving, to not have any change of clothes. What that would feel like would not be, um, the, you know, the stoic, oh, I'm so holy that it doesn't bother me. You're still made out of flesh and blood, and it would bother you. It would be really hard. It is, It is by nature difficult to be in those situations. But the difference is we could look at that and say, Lord, this stinks. I really don't like this. But I know that you have a plan in it. I know you're up to something. And so, Lord, give me strength to get through it. Or, um, or then he goes on, um, uh, danger or sword. So what if somebody threatens to execute us? What if, if somebody threatens to, to lock us up? Can any of those things separate us from the love of God? What Paul has told us in verse 28 is God is using even those things to bring good to us. So as we go through the struggle and the difficulty and the trial, he's bringing those into our life in order to do one thing. One thing to conform us to the image of his son. Look at Jesus. Did Jesus suffer? Was he opposed? Was he persecuted? Yes, he went through all of that. So that's the path we're going to walk. That's that's not a surprise. That's not um, out of left field, where did that come from? And then Paul says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be, pardon me, sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul does is he cites Psalm 44:22, And if you go back and look at all of Psalm 44, the context is the people are crying out, why are we being opposed? Why are we being persecuted? Why is this happening to us? And in the end, there's a prayer for God's deliverance. Lord, wake up and hear us. Hear what's going on. Um, and so this is where that struggle goes, that, that opposition, the, the sword and famine and danger and distress and all of that. It's expressed in the people in Psalm 42, who resolve in worship and prayer, Lord, wake up and come and rescue us. And remember, the Spirit intercedes for us. He's in there there groaning and crying. So where Paul says, he, he cites that, and he says, that was the experience of the saints before Jesus came, before they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit the way we are. So in verse 37, he begins, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So we have it better than they did because we experienced the same struggles, the same difficulties, the same hardships, but we have a cross to look back on. They had a cross to look forward to. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors because we're just really tough. No, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Therefore, in that love, we are more than conquerors we will survive. We will make it to that end, whether it is our own flesh warring against us and struggling and teasing and tempting and luring us, or if it's something external, the powers and the principalities coming against us. They can't separate us from the love of God. And so this is where Paul, um, his ending moment here, the ringing note at the end of his, his symphony is, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. What can separate you from Christ Jesus? What will take God's love away from you? Nothing. Zero. No angel or power in the universe. Uh, can do that. Nothing present, nothing that we're facing now. There's nothing in the future, nothing to come that will separate us from the love of God. There's no height or depth. There's no geographical place we can be where we're separated from that, nor anything in all of creation. Nothing that God has made will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. This is the all things that he's working together for your good. This is the promise that began in our section with justification, which we went through justification, we're sanctified, we're being made more like Jesus. It leads to that idea that we are we are predestined for this. We are blessed with God's foreknowledge. And notice Jesus or Paul didn't start his discussion with, "Well, if you're elect, then da 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 da." In, instead, he brings it in at this point where we're struggling and we're looking and we're going, "How on earth am I going to make it?" Here's how you're going to make it, Saint you are predestined, you are elect, therefore you're going to make it. Now struggle on. You can do this. So this is, this is the promise that he gives us. This is what God has accomplished in our justification. Where Paul is going to go in the next few chapters is it raises a problem. This, this predestination, this, this foreknowledge, raises a problem that Paul will spend three chapters addressing, 9, 10, and 11. He's going to address the question of what about the Jews who don't believe? Um, so he has, he's brought us to this glorious truth, and now he needs to go, now let me explain that because it might be, might be misunderstood, and so that's where he's going to go next. But, Saint, God has conspired um, to make sure that you reach glory. He tells you that to get there, you need to struggle with him, and you need to work through these things. So whatever it is that you're facing today, whatever difficulty it is, start with prayer. Start at at praying, and if you don't feel like praying, pray and ask God, Lord, would you make me pray? Would you remind me to pray? Lord, Holy Spirit, you are in me groaning with wordless prayer. Would you help me express that prayer and bring it out? And and if you don't feel like it, keep going until you do. Um, It is not easy. It's not going to be easy. There are real opposition, And, and what God has done is he's given us the tools to wade through that opposition. Um, He's given us the power. And so saints, let's do that. Let's wrestle through this. And one of the difficulties of doing this in a pandemic is it's really hard to do alone. So find a friend that you can call or text or email or something to encourage you and to connect with and to spend some time with. Uh, Find a way to do it safely in a pandemic, but um, it's not something that we can do on our own. We need the body together as the Holy Spirit is working in each person in different ways to accomplish that purpose. So with that, Lord, let me close us us in prayer. Um, Lord, Holy Spirit, be at work in us, all of us. I pray that you would make it really abundantly clear to us this week that you are at work in us to pray in a way that we don't understand, things that we don't think we should, we don't understand that we should pray about Lord, I pray that your holy groaning within us would express itself in our words, Lord, as we wrap words around those feelings and those desires, Lord, that ache that we have to be delivered from this body of death. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us? I pray that all the saints, all of us here today, uh, all of us on the Zoom call, all the folks uh, attached to my church, all the people in my life would have an opportunity to, to pray and feel that this week. Lord, to recognize that you are at work. Lord, help us to groan. And and Lord, root us in that that reminder that we are foreknown. We are predestined. We are called. We are justified. Lord, we will be glorified. It's as sure as the other things, that you can't pull one of them out and get there. So Lord, help us to to do that. Lord, help us to trust. And Lord, help us to walk in the light that you've given us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.